HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. If you have a wall of cookbooks like I do, but only ever crack open a few, help is at hand. Our guest today is Jane Kelly, the founder of Eat Your Books, an incredible service that allows you to search your own cookbook library to find the perfect recipe. Hundreds of thousands of people across the world are now part of the Eat Your Books community. But to begin with, Jane was in the UK working for an independent record label and the first music TV station in Europe. Later, she was running one of the Virgin Group's companies and cooking on the side. And then she had an idea. Let's have a listen. So, Jane, tell me about Eat Your Books. Where did that come from? How did the idea come to you? So, I've always been a cookbook fan. I've always owned a lot of cookbooks. It was a hobby, though, cooking and collecting cookbooks. And I would find whenever I wanted to cook something, I just never had the time to pull down all my books and look through the indexes at the back. So, I'd go online. I'd actually gone to Epicurious because they had a lot of really good recipes from Gourmet and Bon Appetit. And I thought, well, this is crazy. If I had a search engine like that for my own cookbook collection, I'd actually use my cookbooks more rather than going online. And then have that light bulb moment of thinking, well, there's lots of other people around the world who own cookbooks who would probably love to be able to search their collection rather than. So I set the business up with my sister, Fiona, who lives in New Zealand, and she's ex-Microsoft and I'm not in the publishing world or the food world. I used to work in television, but I have a business background and I've done like three startups. We basically came up, built the business together back. We launched it back in 2009. So the idea is that if you own cookbooks, you want a way to be able to search your own collection. So you come onto our site, we've got 160,000 plus cookbooks in the library, we call it. And you go down and you 
add your own bookshelf, the books that you own. So say you own a lot of books by the Barefoot Contessa. You would put in Barefoot Contessa. So I go through my cookbook collection and I click on everyone that's on your master list. Is that what I do? Yes. Yes. The library, you search the library, say you put in Barefoot Contessa or Ina Garten, and then you just go click, 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 click. These are the ones I own. Now they're on your bookshelf, which is your own collection. Now, when you want to look for a recipe, you're looking through the books that you own. So you want to cook dinner, you've got some ingredients you want to use, you put those in and it'll tell you all of the recipes in your own cookbook collection, what book, what page. And now you can just go and pull the book down from the bookshelf. This is fascinating so you have it not only indexed by recipe but also by like dinner lunch brunch desserts all of that um ethnicity if you're looking for something you want to make a thai soup you can put in soup as a filter thai as a filter and then you could say actually i want to make it with shrimp so you put in shrimp and you can so you can add lots and lots of different criteria and really narrow it down and then find out exactly the recipes you've got in your own cookbooks that you want to cook And how did you get all that information in there? Did you kind of brute force go through every recipe or what was the process? I'm afraid so. I mean... Yeah, I'm afraid so. We've got indexes all over the world and they literally sit with the book or the PDF and enter the data into our database. We've tried to automate it and we can automate it for some things like online recipes we can automate, but cookbooks, it's really not a good OCR as it's called where it's recognizing the characters because of the design, because of the layout, every page is different. It's not a really straightforward thing to do and we've tried doing it, but we end up spending more time correcting the errors than if we'd indexed it from scratch. So no, it's a manual process, which is why no one else in the world has done it. (laughs) So you have indexers, you say, all over the world. What does that mean and who are they? So they're people who've, quite a few of them have got librarian backgrounds because they're very good at data and understanding. They've usually got some sort of good culinary knowledge. Well, they have to have a good culinary knowledge. Some of them are actually our own members who have been doing member indexing, which means we allow our members to use our own indexing tools and they turn out to be very good at it and they've then become paid indexers for us. And um, so they, they actually, we send them the book or we send them the PDF more and more now. It's mainly PDFs. And they then sit with that on an iPad or something next to them, and they're entering the data into our database. Yep. I can only imagine, because you've got ingredients, you've got ethnicity, you've got kind of meal, and uh, that's Yeah, and we've got occasions. We've got things like children's parties and (laughs) Valentine's Day and Christmas and all those type of things. Uh, then we've got the meal and the course. We've got a special diet. So we've got, you know, everything that's vegan and vegetarian and gluten-free and all those type of tags. So, yes, a lot of tags get added. And, of course, you've got none of that in the cookbook index. Well, mainly you don't, you know. So we go far, far further than the cookbook index and right down to herbs and spices in the ingredients list as well. So say you've got a big bunch of dill that you're thinking, oh, I bought that for one recipe and now I want to use it up before it goes off you can just put that in and you couldn't do that in a back of the book index it wouldn't tell you all the recipes in the book that can contain dill so it's that type of thing that you can go far further a couple of questions first of all do you have any copyright issues with the authors of the cookbooks no because nothing we do is in breach of copyright we don't have the ingredient numbers uh, quantities and we don't have the method we're not reproducing any of the recipes we're helping you find recipes in the books you've already paid for and known 
So there's no copyright issue at all. And in fact, the publishers love us and the authors do too, because we're actually helping people use their cookbooks more. And our members all say they buy far more books now because they're actually using their collection. And also we're constantly talking about new books, what new books are coming out. And so they then find out about books they might not have known about. We're actually a helper to the publishing industry and the authors rather than being a a problem for them. And one other question, can I search recipes for books I don't own or am I limited by the universe of the books that I actually own and have on my shelf? You can search anything in the library at all. You can search, um, we've got 2.4 million recipes indexed and you can search anything at all on the library. But of course, if you don't own the book, you're not going to be able to get the full recipe. Though we do have links. If a recipe is available online, we will link to that only if it's been done with the publisher's permission. We're very respectful of copyright. So there's about almost 400,000 of those recipes where you can actually link to the full recipe. So if you don't find what you want in your own cookbook collection, you can actually go and click on something online. And I, I must say also, as well as cookbooks, we index food magazines. So all of the main food magazines around the world, we index every issue every month. So those all have links to the full recipes because the magazines usually put up most of their recipes on their own website. So there's a lot of great recipes in there that you might not come across, you know, like from the UK or Australia or New Zealand, as as well as from all the uh, US food magazines. Wow. That's amazing. And you have over 2 million recipes. Yeah, 2.4 million recipes. 2.4 million recipes. And yeah, and it's growing every it's growing every month. We add more books, more magazines every month. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me roll it back a little bit. First of all, you're not from you're not from Kansas. Where are you from? I'm from London, but I I moved to the U.S. 23 years ago. Uh, but I've kept my kept my accent. And you did. Yeah, you so did keep I your accent here. I, yeah. Yeah. And what brought you from London to the United States? My husband of the time, his job. We came for two years, two years then became five and somehow we ended up staying and we became US citizens and my kids who are now adults because they were young when they moved here, they're really American now. And so, yeah, I'm here for good. (laughs) And tell me how you, how this whole idea came about to you. You referenced earlier that you were in the television world, but you have a business background. Unpack that for me. So my last 15 years in television before I moved to the US was with Virgin, the Virgin Group, who people probably mainly know for the airline, but uh, but they actually are big in entertainment as well. I worked for them 15 years, did three different startups with them. Last nine years before I moved here was running a post-production company, which means editing television programs. Um, so that's what I did before I moved here. And then after I'd moved here, I took a few years off while my kids were young and then really wanted to get back into business, but wanted to start my own business. And so that's when I came up with the idea for Eat Your Books, because it was a need that I had, which often the best ideas are a need you have yourself. And then you think, oh, there's other people who might need that too. And it's turned out to be true. We've got hundreds of thousands of members all around the world who are all into cookbooks and food magazines. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of members around the world. Isn't that incredible? Did yeah. you ever imagine it would get yeah. that big? Um, it's always hard to say when you look back. I'm surprised that I'm still doing it 13 years later. Well, not surprised because I love it. When you're doing something you love, it doesn't feel like a job, does it? Not um, really. And, 
No, no. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I was surprised how much it took off very quickly outside the US. I thought because I was in the US and we started off being very US centric with the books we were covering. I thought that we wouldn't get so much interest outside. But in fact, the UK, um, Australia, really big memberships there now and, uh, and Canada and New Zealand, mainly English language countries, but lots of other countries as well where people love to buy English language cookbooks because there's some great books. Totally amazing. And how did the cooking bug get you? Tell me what it was like to grow up in your household, making food, eating dinner. What was that like? So I'm the oldest of five children. And I think maybe because of that, but also just because I got a baking bug very early. I think my mother says that at the age of five, I insisted I needed a baking set, but not like a kid's baking set, a proper adult baking set, proper adult size mixing bowl and wooden spoon and rolling pin and all that. Always from a very young age, been a baker, loved baking. And then also with my mom working and having five kids, I ended up being the family cook because I was much more adventurous than she was and I loved doing it. And so the cookbooks, I think, came a little bit from that where I would say, oh, can we get this cookbook to my mom? And funnily enough, the first cookbook I owned, which is funny given that I was English, was The Joy of Cooking. My mom bought it for me for my 13th birthday. And um, it's funny looking back now, you know, that I live in the US and Joy of Cooking so big here because I'm not sure why she'd have bought that book in the UK, but she did. And so that was my very first cookbook, started my collection, which is now 3,000 strong. And with Joy of Cooking, were there metric? Did you have any trouble uh, altering the measurements? No, I think I'm, she must have bought me a set of cups as well, thinking back now, because there's no way I could have cooked from the joy cooking without the cups, because everything was in cups in those days. There wasn't any metric. Well, there wasn't even metric in the UK at that time. So yeah, yeah, I think I'm fairly certain looking back, we had a set of cups. I remember when I first moved to Switzerland, I had two sets of measuring cups and spoons and all of that. So that instead of having to do the calculation, I just did what I needed to do. So here you were, a small child, starting with your joy of cooking, baking for everybody, and then making dinner for everybody. What did you find yourself drawn to? What did you make? So one of the big things I would do with my baking passion was Sunday afternoon tea, which is a big thing in the UK. So that would usually involve scones, as we pronounce them in the UK. So then there would also be some type of cake. I would always make a, a cake of some time. There's a cake in the UK called Victoria Sponge, which is like two layers of a sponge a sandwich with jam and cream. That's always a popular one. And then one of the things I love making, which is a British thing, is called Bakewell Tart. And that is a pastry crust with a almond um, filling with a raspberry jam base and then an almondy sponge on the top, which is very delicious, and flaked almonds on the top. That's a big thing. Anybody in who's listening who, uh, who owns Nigella Lawson books will know she also loves Bakewell Tart. There's several in her <laughs> various books. Different things, baking things, cookies, brownies later on. Brownies didn't weren't at the beginning for me. And then I'd be, with being five kids, there was always plenty of people to eat anything I made. So, yeah. Did any of the other kids become your 
assistant helpers and yes both my sisters in fact are my sous chefs and they always joke that whenever we get together if like we're together at a vacation or christmas or something like that that they get annoyed because they instantly default to being my sous chefs again which they say <laughs> we do actually cook at home you know we don't have to always be your sous chefs <laughs> but that was always their role yeah helping me out my brothers weren't so much into cooking funnily enough but they uh, they did are oh, now as adults but when they were younger they weren't but yeah yeah they were uh we were we were, we were a very food-centric family like many families most family celebrations were set were around food you know birthdays <laughs> christmas you know all that type of stuff would be very it's all about what are we eating <laughs> <laughs> what's she making what do we eat? it's hard to talk to you with your beautiful accent and this a conversation about baking and not think of the british baking show do you watch oh, that the show? great british bake-off i <laughs> love that show actually i've just start, started watching the professionals i don't know how that missed passed me by there's also now on netflix this whole great british bake-off as well but it's done with the professional pastry chefs so i've just started watching that but i love bake-off the people are always so nice and cute and they always get on there's no nastiness it's a great show they are so nice to each other they really are <laughs> yeah just so nice to each other it's really fun to watch we'll be back with jane kelly in a moment and hear just how she grew her idea into a worldwide community this episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back with Jane Kelly. So when you first started... Eat your books. How did you grow it? Um, a lot of it has been word of mouth, just because people, when they're into cookbooks and they discover something like this, they want to tell everybody else they know who's into cooking and cookbooks. So a lot has been word of mouth. We've had some great publicity over the years, um, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, but a lot of food magazines. All the food magazines have written about us at one time or another because obviously we index their recipes as well. So that's been great for them that they have the index of, of all their uh, their content on, on the site. So, we, yeah, some really good publicity. Um, as I said, word of mouth. Well, I assume you're a user of your own product. So oh, heavily. Are, yes. So what are the books and authors you find yourself gravitating to most often um so i have a whole section in my 
kitchen where uh, is all the books that I use a lot of. So I suppose I could tell just by telling you who's on that those shelves. They're the ones I reach to most. So Otto Lenghi, and he's an Israeli chef based in London. Love his books. And then I also like another British authors, Nigella Lawson and Nigel Slater. They're both really good writers as well as great recipes. And then I also love Dory Greenspan for baking. Her books are always wonderful. Everything I've ever made of hers love has worked. Love that book. Love yeah, that book. All, love. all of her books are amazing. And yeah. then for everyday cooking, I love Melissa Clark who's a New York Times writer, and she does a lot of really good everyday cooking books. She has great books. I love her stuff for every day. The Milk Street books are really good, actually. I wasn't a huge fan of Cook's Illustrated, but I love the Milk Street books. The nice thing with Eat Your Books is that often when you own cookbooks, you just gravitate to the ones you know because you think, well, I know what's in there, so I'll go to that book. And then you've got these other great books that you're sort of neglecting because you don't know what's in them. And that's the great thing about Eat Your Books, that you're going to discover recipes that you didn't know you had. And so, for example, you're looking for something and you would always just go to the same book to find a recipe because you think, oh, well, that's about that. But that you've actually got loads of other great recipes that you don't even know you have. I find I use a lot more across all of my books now rather than just gravitating to the same old names. Well, I wonder, because I also have a lot of cookbooks, and there are top shelves and bottom shelves, but it's really more out of uh, haphazardness than plan. And so the idea that if I'm looking to make like a roasted tomato soup, that I'll find recipes in six of my books instead of the two that are on the top shelf is pretty enticing. But is that yeah. what I do? I say, I go to the, I go to eat your books. I say tomato soup. And it tells me six of your cookbooks has a recipe. Absolutely. And then I, yeah. and then I get the book. I actually, yep. I'm not, I'm not printing out the recipe from eat nope. your books. I'm nope. going to my own book. Yep, you're taking that book off the shelf, going to that page, we tell you where the recipe is, and then you've got the full recipe. So it's how you use your books far more. You can quickly find a recipe. What a great idea. Um, but also, you can go even more with using these filters that we have. You know, I was talking earlier about the database and the amount of information we put in there. Even if you don't put in tomato soup, if you put in tomato must pronounce it in the American way, tomato soup. <laughs> you would put in soup as a filter and then you'd put in tomatoes as the ingredient. You'd actually find loads of other recipes that aren't even called tomato soup. They've got other names, but they happen to be a soup with tomatoes in it, which again, you wouldn't be able to find in the back of the book index because you wouldn't know all the other names that these soups have. It widens out your scope enormously in, in finding stuff in your cookbooks because you're not limiting yourself just to, say, for example, chocolate cake. If you put in chocolate cake, you're going to miss a whole load of European chocolate cakes that aren't called that. So, But using our filter, you would put in chocolate as the ingredient, cake as the recipe type, and you can find every cake that's got chocolate in it. It's really fascinating because I was thinking yesterday when I found a black turtleneck that I had so carefully put away in plastic bags last winter. Like, oh, I wonder how many other things I actually own that I really don't know where they are, or how to use them. And this strikes, <laughs> <laughs> not how to use them, but where to, they're out of mind. So the idea that I could go to my own cookbook collection, which is, I have to say, embarrassingly large, and I find myself I am a little embarrassed to admit this. I always think I'll get rid of like 20 of them, and then I can't. I just can't. I somehow hold it's them back. It's <laughs> torture. Yeah, yeah, it's torture. I think this sounds great. And 
what do you find, do you have any sense of how often your members use the service? Daily, weekly? There are many who use it daily because they tell us. It's interesting. We don't actually keep stats of that, of how many times each person comes. But certainly you've got your power users, the people who use it every day, comment on every recipe they make. That's the other nice thing about the site, actually. It's also a community. So members write reviews of the recipes that they've made and they take photos of them and they put those up on the site so that it becomes this great wealth of knowledge as well. So say you're going to make your tomato soup you've chosen you go on to eat your books and you find out all the other comments from the other people who've made it. And they might say, well, it needed a bit more liquid because it was a bit too thick for my taste or that type of thing. So you've got this great community feeling of sharing that, which you don't get anywhere else with cookbooks because you buy a cookbook and you're in your house and you have no idea what anybody else has ever done with it. But this way, you're actually all sharing that wealth of knowledge. That's a huge part of the site. So you say about how often people are using it. That is a good gauge, actually, because we get hundreds of those every day. People uploading their reviews and their photos and rating recipes and adding their own bookmarks because you can actually add all your own bookmarks. You can create your own tags and add them like dinner party. You can now, anytime you're having people over, you can see all the recipes you're tagged as being things you might want to cook when you're entertaining. So it's great wealth of knowledge beyond just the searching. I'm not an expert cook, but I, I am reliably good. I'll look at somebody's recipe and I'll know what to do. It looks pretty straightforward to me. And then I'll give that recipe to somebody and they're like, but it didn't tell me to do this and it didn't tell me to do that. There's such a range in the knowledge base of cookbook users. So I assume that the comments are kind of like tinkering with the recipe and essentially making them more accessible for all sorts of people or improving yeah them. yeah the good and the bad that, that this worked really well because or I love this recipe because but also I found it didn't need 40 minutes it was actually burnt at 40 minutes so check after 30 that type of thing's really useful when you're a yeah particularly a novice cook who will take the recipe and follow it verbatim without really thinking oh well actually if it smells like it might be burning then it might be time to check <laughs> which more experienced <laughs> cooks would know but also for experienced cooks as well just hearing ideas that other people had like oh I replaced x with x and it worked really well that type of thing can be great to know. Fabulous and what do you find that you cook? What, what do you uh, well, I'm on my own now. My kids, are, as I said, are grown and gone, so I might live on my own. I'm really into the whole sheet pan thing at the moment, the whole roasting stuff on one pan. I love that sort of roasting vegetables and, and stuff all on one pan. So there's been a lot of great books around that recently, which is good. I, I have got a question about that. Yeah. The sheet pan thing came upon me too, and, then, and I, I love it because it's very simple. But then I said to myself about six months ago, what did I use before I did sheet pans? What is it the successor to? <laughs> Where did this come from? I mean, <laughs> do you, yeah. what did we use before we used sheet pans? Oh, I know. Isn't it funny? Yeah, when you, when you think back, yeah. Yeah, so I did that. I, uh, I've, I've got a lot more into vegetables, like most people, trying to cut down on meat. And uh, so I, I do a lot more vegetarian cooking than I used to do. Um, I'm not a vegetarian, but I like at least several nights a week cooking vegetarian although I've said I love baking I, I never bake just for me because it's too dangerous I only bake when I'm taking it to other people's <laughs> houses so I'm known as the dessert queen so anybody who's having a dinner and I'm I'm the one that brings the dessert uh, so I'll, I that, that I get my baking fix in by taking it to other people's houses 
very into new things because I've got so many books. I'm interested in trying different different ethnicities, different things that I haven't come across before. My spice collection is huge and just always trying to find new things. Yeah. Have you ever had an epic fail in the kitchen? Oh, God, no cook's ever going to own up to that. (laughs) (laughs) I would. Yes, of course, we've all had fails. I'm trying to think now. I don't think I've ever dropped anything, which is always the awful thing of dropping a whole dish. Oh, actually, no, that's not true. I did do one recently. I was making lasagna for my daughter, and I somehow, and I still don't know how, as I was removing the pan from the oven, it tipped, and the whole thing tipped out onto the door of the oven. So that was an epic fail, yeah, and that was such a mess. We were still smelling burnt lasagna for days afterwards, even when I cleaned it as much as I could. Epic fail in terms of cooking... Yeah, I'm sure I must have done at times, you know, the the cake that sunk a bit in the middle. But you can always disguise those things, can't you? Lay a whipped cream (laughs) on the top and who who knows? It's just a sunken chocolate cake. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think generally, even with your fails, you can usually get around it, you know, sort of. If you don't tell, what Julia Child said, you don't tell people you dropped the chicken on the floor. Who's to know? (laughs) (laughs) And that is the downside of very open kitchens, but yes. That's true. <laughs> yeah, they know? hear the clatter as the pan hits the floor. <laughs> so tell me your ideal dinner party. How many people? What do you serve? What time of year is it? Oh, gosh. I think probably six is a good number. I think any more than that, it tends to break up into two separate ends, and I don't think that's ever so successful. I have a round table, so I like everybody joining in all together rather than having two separate conversations going on. So I like smaller rather than big. I like having stuff that I can prep ahead so you're not like rushing around like a mad thing. So I always try and have the dessert completely done in advance. And I actually usually ask people to bring the appetizers because I think that helps a lot when you're standing around having drinks. And I've got very into cocktails recently, so I quite like having cocktails before dinner and And then I would have the main course that I would, again, try and have prepped as much in advance as possible. So I think the worst thing you want, particularly when the open plan kitchen thing you were mentioning, is is being the harried cook who's making everyone else feel stressed because you're rushing around like a mad thing and no one's relaxed. So I think it's really important to be relaxed. And I'm not... My friends are always horrified that I will always cook things I've never cooked before for dinners. And they say, they're saying, how can you do that? Aren't you stressed about cooking something, not knowing how it's going to turn out? But I think it's always fine. I, I like trying out new things. I uh, don't have a problem with that. And I love the whole preparation thing of choosing what you're going to make as well, going through, looking through my books and deciding what I'm going to make. No, it is fun. It is fun. Yeah. Well, wow. I just love talking to you. I can't wait to get on the site now. I don't think I fully understood all of the things it could do for me. Yeah. Amazing. I just love this. Well, thank you so much. It's just such an incredible service. It's such an incredible undertaking. The idea that you have hundreds of thousands of people across the globe who are finding out how to make tomato soup. Yeah, and if anybody who's listening would would like to try it out, I'm really happy if they want to go on and they could have a free one-month trial if they wanted to try it out. They just would enter a voucher code, which would be LTAF for Let's Talk About Food, 23, LTAF. LTAF23 and that would give them a free one month trial of our premium membership and so they could then add their books and just try it out and see if they like it before committing to paying well thank you for that Jane and to all of our listeners LTAF let's talk about food 23 
LTAF23. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Hugely flattered. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was great. Well, I've really enjoyed it, Louisa. It's been a great chat. Always happy to talk about cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Bye. If you'd like a free trial subscription to Eat Your Books, visit eatyourbooks.com and use the code LTAF23. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.